Amen. Thank you guys so much. Wonderful to have you here, as Lauren said. Thank you so much for worshiping with us here in person and all of you online. We uh, love these opportunities to sing and read God's Word together. Uh, Sadly, we wanted to start off on a a somber note and uh, remember a tragedy that happened here uh, at BGSU this last week. Uh, Maybe you've seen that in the news. It's even been in the national news. But we wanted to take a moment just to pray for Stone Foltz uh, in a fraternity um, drinking situation and a hazing incident. And it's just a super sad tragedy. Um, And it's a a really somber way to start off. But we wanted to remember him. We wanted to pray, pray for their family. And uh, I know when difficult things happen like this, it just kind of puts that pit in your stomach when when someone uh, goes through something such an unspeakable tragedy. And uh, I think one of the people that mentioned in the news article, maybe it was a parent that just said, this is like every parent's worst nightmare. And so we just wanted to turn to God and remember him and pray for him. So let's just have a moment of silence for stone folds, and then we'll pray for him. Lord, we take this quiet moment to remember Stone Foltz and his family. Lord, we turn our eyes to you and we just ask for your comfort. We ask for your help. We ask for your mercy for all those involved. Lord, there are no words for uh, this kind of situation. Lord, we just quietly come before you and say, Lord, lift them up and help them. Be with his parents, be with his family and friends, Lord, as they experience this sorrow. Lord, these times of tragedy don't always have a clear uh, reason or answer or know how to response, uh, respond or a proper way of grieving. But Lord, we turn our eyes to you and we just ask for your help. Lord, help them, help our community. Uh, Lord, we remember them and lift them up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at difficult times like that, you know, it's just so important, again, to just turn our eyes to spiritual things. And as we turn to God's scriptures today in James uh, chapter 4, we're kind of reminded of like the importance of eternity and uh, all these things that God so graciously has given us in his word. So if you've been with us for a little while, you know that we're going through the the book of James, this really hard-hitting book, this hard-hitting words from the book of James. If you're brand new and you haven't jumped into this series yet, or for uh, new people listening online, this is a really uh, kind of just in-your-face kind of book. We've talked about how Galatians talks a lot about the grace of God and that that grace is disconnected from our personal works, and we don't earn our way to heaven, but we receive the grace from God. James is on the other side of the bookshelf, and he's saying, your faith that's in you and this this belief that you have in Jesus should dramatically change how you live. So he's speaking to people that aren't really living it out. One of the verses that's kind of the key to the whole book is faith without works is dead. And so we continue on in chapter four, we're going to cover the uh, verses one through 12. And again, it's just a really hard hitting passage. We're going to read some, some difficult passages here. And I'm reminded when I was reflecting on this this section and praying, was just thinking about 
when you're moving a, a, a beast of burden, uh, and do you use a carrot or a stick? You've probably heard that phrase before, that cliche of the carrot out in front of something that you want to move forward. That's kind of the reward. You're going after the carrot, and the beast of burden loves to eat those carrots. Or if the carrot isn't there, do you use the stick to discipline the animal. Not that it perfectly equates, but I also was just thinking about my own parenting methods. Not that my kids are beasts of burden at all. But it kind of makes you think about like, okay, what motivates me? Is it the reward and the blessing and the thing out there that's like a good promise? Or am I motivated more by discipline? And how we kind of are, were raised in our own family. We think about our own upbringing that could influence that. But these are things that my wife and I think about as we're raising our kids. Maybe you have some thoughts on that. You know, was there a reward? Was there an allowance? It was like, hey, you get this task done and we can go get ice cream. That kind of thing. We use the carrot. We use the ice cream to motivate and encourage people to go in the right direction. Or maybe you were raised where things were withheld, where you're going to have to lose your technology. You're going to have some time out. You're going to have some punishment. Maybe even some families use the wooden spoon for some corporal uh, punishment. And we're not going to debate that today. But I grew up with the wooden spoon. And I went to a private school where they used the paddle. And I will just speak from experience. It was motivating. It was very motivating. Now, I know in our culture, we don't always like to think about that. We don't like to think about punishment, pruning, discipleship, or an authority pressing in on us. But this is what James is all about in this section. And as we read through it, you're going to be like, wow, that's, that's tough to hear. We have a holy God that loves us. We have a holy God that has some amazing promises for us. He says, if you live humbly with me, I will give you favor. I will bless you with my grace. I will give you good gifts. The humble will receive the gift of grace. Man, that feels good, right? That sounds great. But the verse also says, God opposes the proud. And in this section that we're reading, it's also sprinkled throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's jump in and read verses 1 through 12. We'll read it all the way through so you can kind of really get a sense of how hard-hitting James was hitting these people uh, with their hypocrisy and their, un, their lack of understanding of what it meant to walk with Christ. So here we go in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Wow. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? This is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor 
to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Wow. Some powerful words. You kind of need to just take a deep breath just to absorb all of this scripture and what is being communicated to us. To kind of absorb it a little bit more, I want to break it into some parts here so that we can kind of just reflect on each section and draw some points from it. And this first point that I want to make is about our personal pleasures and our selfish motives and how they cause fights among us. There's so much quarreling and fighting going on in our world. And the first point is this. That happens because there's a battle inside our hearts, pulling on our hearts toward personal pleasure and selfish motives. It says this again. Let's go back and, and reflect on that one through three. He says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your selfish Desires that battle within you. We want our own way. You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. Even if we don't physically kill, we hate. The Bible says if we hate or we wish ill upon someone, it's like murder in our hearts. It says, go on, it says, but you covet. You cannot get what you want, so you quarrel. You fight because you're not getting your way. You don't have because you don't ask God. He's saying, I'm a gracious God. I want to give to you. Come to me. Don't fight for it. Come to me and let me bless you. Maybe God in his loving holiness will say yes, and maybe he'll say no. He says, when you do ask, though, you don't receive it because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Man, one of the ways that I see this play out so much in life, and I, I, I'm sure that you'll see this and agree with this, that there's so much need right now for conflict resolution. There's so much quarreling and fighting going on. And when I look at my own life and I reflect back on the instances with other people that God wants me to be connected with, to be in this loving relationship with, to be spurring one another on and encouraging them and have this intimacy that reflects God, and how my own pleasures, my own selfish motives, my own desires, like it talks about in Philippians 2, where we want our own way and we feel entitled, actually breaks down the relationships and becomes a wedge between the very people that I want to love and I want to be close with. I know I see this in your lives. You come and bring this to us all the time. Marriages that are struggling. Relationships with children college students with roommates, boyfriends, girlfriends, people at work, people at school that rub us the wrong way and we're trying to battle and we're trying to fight to get our own way and there's dissension, 
quarreling and fighting. And James is reminding them, you know there's a battle inside of you, right? You want to get your way. You want to win. We're constantly battling selfishness within us that as we're filled with the Spirit and we're experiencing God, that selfishness starts to go away and the selflessness rises where we want to sacrifice and we want to get each other's back and help each other. I'd shared recently in our marriage conference that we had how Mary Lynn and I had this couple weeks that was just really difficult after New Year's Eve. We just felt like we were missing each other so much. We were having trouble understanding. We were hurting one another. We were having all of these problems and these quarrels and fights, and we were trying to verbalize it, but we recognized within ourselves we wanted the other one to see how wrong they were. And when you have those kind of conflicts, and it lasted like 10 days, not, not extreme fighting, but just this discussion of missing one another. And we've made this commitment that as Christ is dwelling inside of us and we want to reflect Jesus in our marriage, we're going to keep working. We're going to keep talking and keep communicating and be godly about our conflict resolution until we understand and love and show compassion and empathy again so hard. When you're really in the valley of conflict resolution, there's some things that are really hard to say, like, I love you. I appreciate you. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Those are things that only come with an honest heart through the Spirit. And we don't want to love. We don't want to appreciate them. We don't want to admit we're wrong. We don't want to say we're sorry. And this hurts our relationships. More importantly, we're going to read on. It says it hurts our relationship with God. Well, what is my fight with my roommate or my boyfriend, girlfriend, my spouse, these people in my life? What does that have to do with my relationship with God? And James is saying, yeah, that's what you don't understand. We conflict resolution with each other Because a holy God has done conflict resolution with us. We were in conflict with God because of our sin. And he says, I am going to come out of heaven and give my only son, Jesus, to you to reconcile us, to bring us back together because this conflict that's happening has eternal consequences. And I want to resolve it with you. Okay, God, I conflict resolution with others. I'm using that as a verb there because you've done it so well with us. That's our second point. God jealously longs for a relationship with us. He's gone far out of his way to have a relationship with you. He loves you. He cares for you. No matter what you've done in your life, he's passionate about you. He likes you. He wants intimacy with you, but it's on his terms. And when we walk in the world and we walk in hate, we walk in unforgiveness, we can't walk with him. He says that's friendship with the world. Here's what he says, moving on to verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scriptures speak without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. He uses some really strong language here about being an adulterous people. He wants to be in this intimate relationship with us like a marriage. And we turn away from him and we have this friendship with the world. Now, what does that mean? What does the scripture mean when it talks about the world? It doesn't actually mean the people of the world. It means the tendencies of the world. It means all the things in the world that pull you away from God. It means the stream that's just going away from God and his love and his laws that just says, no, live like this. Don't live that Christian stuff. Live like the rest of the world. And in their fights, in their selfishness, in the the thing that I am the center of the universe, those are all the tendencies and principles of the world. And God is saying, I don't want you to love the world. I don't want you to be of the world. I don't want you to be best friends with all of that. I want you to be with me. The Bible says over and over again this this really strong tendency that we have to kind of walk in the middle in this gray area. And the Bible says we are either for God or we're against God. Now, again, that verse that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. We see this warning and this promise. The warning and the promise. And, you know, I'll I'll be honest, uh, just kind of thinking through my own life and my own personality of how I am a father, a husband, a pastor, I have noticed in myself I really do enjoy leading with encouragement. I'm kind of the, the, the carrot kind of person. You know, it's like, hey, kids, let's get this done and we'll go get ice cream. You know, hey, let's all do this together as a church. Let's do this and it will be great. And here's what will happen. And I love the encouragement and I love the warm words. And in my honesty, I can tell you, sometimes I tend to be too much on that side. Or maybe I need to be stronger. And it's really amazing when your kids speak truth to me and, and there's these things going on in our, in our life and my kids say to me, Dad, you're too soft. It's like, yeah, I, you know what? You're right, I am. I can get the wooden spoon if you want. No, no, we like the ice cream. No, that ice cream's good, you know? But I'm a flawed father. I'm a flawed pastor. But we have a holy God, a holy father that knows how to motivate us with blessing, but he has a, he has a warning. There are consequences. He is a holy judge that beautifully, both so importantly says, I want to bless you. I really care about you, but I'm God. And I, if I need to prune you and I need to discipline you for your good and the good of the church, he will do that. What a, what a troubling thing. What a thing that brings awe to think that we could actually walk in pride and a holy God oppose us. Why is it so hard? It just seems so simple. Why don't we just listen to God? Well, we have these selfish desires, but we also have an enemy 
working against us, which is our third point. James brings up the enemy, the devil. And the third point is this. The enemy has a plan to feed our pride and independence. The Bible makes it very clear that Satan is real and he is trying to destroy your life. Jesus says, I came to give you abundant life, but the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy you. And we as as mankind can be so blind to the spiritual world. We can be so naive to the spiritual realm going on all around us. One of my favorite books is C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. It's this amazing commentary. I encourage you to read it. If you need your eyes open, just the idea of the spiritual battle in this this book called Screwtape Letters, an older demon is training the younger demon how to ruin people's lives. That's really what happens. The Bible says the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What does James say? Let's go to verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Why such strong language from James? It was probably like the Van Halen song, Running with the Devil. You think, well, I'm not running with the devil. But are you wise to his ways? James says the devil's working in your life and you and I are to resist him and he will flee. Why does he flee? Let me make this important point. Jesus in us is more powerful than the enemy's attacks. With Jesus, as we say, you know, leave me alone. No, I don't want you in my life. I say no to that temptation in the name of Jesus. He flees, he's cowering, he's weak compared to Jesus. If you're sitting here today and you're exploring Christianity, maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus yet. We're so glad you're here. But the Bible says that you're powerless against his attacks. And he does have a plan to ruin your life. He kind of knows you better than you even think. You know, years back, I really loved football. I enjoy the NFL, and it's something really fun for me to do. And I remember a few years back, maybe you've heard of this story about Spygate. And what was happening was this evil football team. I'm just kidding. This one football team, if you know who it is, I won't say, but they were playing my team in the Super Bowl not long ago. And this team was sneaking into the other stadiums and the other practices and videotaping their offense so that they might predict and be able to defend them. They were getting these videos and thinking, okay, if they're in this formation or we hear this kind of audible, we're going to know what play they're running. We're going to cheat. And when we see that in action on Sunday, we're going to know how to defend them. And they got caught because they were cheating. They were trying to figure out the plays to predict so that they could bring this defense to stop the other team. You know the enemy's doing the same thing with us? He's watching. He knows our weaknesses. He knows the play. 
And if we are not lock and load with Jesus, he's reading our mail and he's thinking we're going to plot against them to ruin their life, to sabotage them. And I've got my certain plays and I've got my certain tendencies that Satan will try to, you know, exploit. And you have yours. And he's trying to exploit it. And we get alone with God and we say, oh, dear God, show me my weaknesses. How is he predicting my plays? How is he trying to be out ahead of me to ruin my life? And when we pray that prayer, we're resisting the devil. We're going to win. He will provide the way of escape. There's no temptation that you're going through that isn't common to man. But the things that we're going through, in some way or another, we're all experiencing. And the Bible says he will provide the way of escape. Here's another really difficult revelation about the enemy. If we're really honest, sometimes we don't want to resist him. Sometimes we know what he's doing and we're just not willing to humble ourselves and let go. In the criminal world, that's called aiding and abetting the enemy. This crime of aiding and abetting, we're not actually doing the crime necessarily, but we're helping. We're encouraging. We're allowing it to happen blindly. We can be aiding and abetting the enemy in our lives. And God says, that is no way to live. Don't make him prune you. Don't make him discipline you because of your pride. Allow him to bring you the abundant life that he wants for you. Fourthly, it's so important that we live this way. It's so important because every one of us has something in common. We have many things in common, but one of the things that we have in common is we will die and we will stand before a holy judge. And that's how James finishes up this passage in verses 11 and 12. He says in in our fourth point, God is the judge that can save or destroy. He's the ultimate judge. Our words should lead to salvation, not destruction. You and I are not here to destroy other people. We're not here to tear them down with our words or our heart or our mind, or our attitudes toward them. We are supposed to be on the mission together to bring people to salvation. He's the judge, and he will save some and destroy others. But we're on the rescue mission, not the the destruction team. Let's read these final two verses for this morning in 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? I'll be really honest with you. When things are hard in my life and I don't feel like I'm up to par, I start feeling very critical toward myself. And the next thing that happens right after that is I become critical of everyone else. Is that your experience? 
You're irritated with others. You're very critical of others. We talked about this a few weeks ago where we we have that measuring stick and we're measuring everybody else in our lives. But maybe what's going on is we're not happy with where we're at. We're feeling critical toward ourselves. And God always leads me to do some spiritual discipline that totally changes that. And here's what it is. You know, sometimes at H2O, we've encouraged you and still do to go out and just write out all the things that you're so thankful for that God has blessed you with. You know, just write them out. And it's so good. You just start writing it out. Maybe by God's grace, you're writing out pages of things that this good father has blessed on you. The carrots of life, the blessing of life, the ice cream of life. Wow, God, I am so blessed. I'm so thankful for all these things. And it's wonderful. Makes your heart fill up with gratitude. And it's really an amazing spiritual discipline to do. But you know, sometimes God's caused me to do something else to go out with the same paper and pencil and start writing out my sins. To start writing out my failures. And to do this spiritual discipline is very difficult. To even go back into the past, things very shameful that I did, and just writing them out. And all of us could fill out pages of that too. And once I'm done doing that, I'll say, God... Without Jesus in my life, I am doomed to pay for all of these myself. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for these sins on the cross so that I might be set free. I might be let off the hook. Thank you for rescuing me. And man, I'm just filled with gratitude also. And I take out the lighter and I burn that piece of paper. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And now that critical spirit that I was having toward myself and all those negative rewinds that just keep going on that I'm not worthy, say, you know what? I'm not worthy. Thank you, Jesus, that you made me righteous. And now I've got all this grace and forgiveness toward other people. And it changes my perspective of other people because of my relationship with God. Draw near to God and let him favor you with his grace. Are you experiencing his grace? Are you drawing near to him with a humble heart? It will change everything. And if we don't, if we don't recognize the grace, the forgiveness, and the gift, we get hard-hearted and prideful Our relationships reflect it. And oh, dread that we might actually be fighting against God. Let's pray and ask God to bring us into a humble place of thanksgiving before him. Lord, just as I was reflecting on this passage and it's speaking so deeply to my heart, I just have thought, what an amazing Heavenly Father, we have in you. You're so perfect as a a gracious God. You're so perfect as one that disciplines us and prunes us so that we might be better than we even want to be. Lord, we welcome you. We welcome you into our lives. And Lord, I pray for each person here 
that they would participate in that spiritual discipline, even this week, to go out and reflect on the failures, to write them out, to set them on fire and to see them disappear by your mercies. Oh Lord, we're so thankful. Help us to walk in humility with you and man, it just changes our relationship so beautifully. Bring intimacy in our church. Bring intimacy in our relationship with you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.